Through humility is the antidote to shame. Through humility, we dissolve our pride and embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 151 of Embrace the Void, where the cake was always a lie, you just weren't listening. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we continue to try to help make sense of all this critical theory talk, so let's crit some theories. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something... My guest this week is Dr. Jonathan Flowers, who teaches a wide range of topics at Worcester State University, including Asian and Africana philosophy, um, as well as aesthetics when he can get the chance. Jonathan, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know uh, if I should expect the void to say hi back. <laughs> it it will if you're gener- if you're nice about it. Yeah, it's uh it's a friendly void. Um, so welcome. I really appreciate you coming on and chatting. We've had a couple of interactions um on Twitter, and um I've seen you sort of very vocal on sort of a variety of issues uh having to do with both academia and social justice that are common topics for us on the show. So I appreciate you um coming on and talking about this stuff some. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah. So do you want to give folks a little bit of a sense of your sort of background, where you fall on all the interesting spectrums that you would want people to know about if uh, they were going to understand where you were coming from and all of this? So I, w- I like to say that broadly, my background is in uh, East Asian philosophy, particularly um, Zen Buddhism through Dogen uh, and Japanese aesthetics through uh, Motori Norinaga Um and uh, the Kokugaku tradition, but specifically I focus on Norinaga's theory of mono no aware uh, as an affective relationship to the world and how that informs broadly our uh, engagements with the world, uh, the people and things in it. So in that I do a bit of, of Shinto metaphysics and Shinto broadly, but there's also significant overlaps with uh, American pragmatism, particularly uh, through uh, John Dewey's transactional pragmatism, which is uh, the third part of my ground, so or the third part of my, my broad approach to philosophy. So generally, I start from a, a kind of uh, East Asian or Japanese aesthetics, Zen, American pragmatist approach to a broad variety of subjects, and which expands outwards into my work in, in philosophy of race, gender, disability technology, uh, aesthetics. Uh, Primarily, my interest is in uh, 
articulating the affective ground of our lived experiences, including mm-hmm. our experiences of identity, technology, uh, social structures, institutional structures. So for me, uh, I, I tend to approach things uh, through an affective or through affective engagements with the world, affective transactions with the world, where we we come to know things as felt or in ways other than as objects of uh, knowledge uh, traditionally construed. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a worldview that I could certainly be sympathetic to on a variety of fronts. I'm curious, can you give like a concrete on the ground, like conclusion side of the um, equation example of like what the implications are you feel like from you coming from that aesthetic background into the, you know, social justice realm? Oh, sure. Uh, so we can think about something like being in solidarity with people, right? So Paulo Freire uh, says that in order to for an oppressor to be in solidarity with the oppressed, they have to trust in the oppressed's experience of the world. And uh, a lot of what Freire is saying is that the the knowledges of the oppressed are primarily felt knowledge or felt experiences of the world, uh, which is to say that in order for an oppressor to be in solidarity with the oppressed, they have to trust in the oppressed's own understanding of their felt experience of oppression, their felt transactions with the world. So when we think about uh, movements to bring disparate groups in solidarity with one another, it's not simply a uh, it's not simply that different groups need intellectual understandings of uh, say the experiences of oppression, but they have to trust in one another's understandings of the felt experiences of oppression, including though the the distinctions that one's positionality brings to it. A a more on the ground example, and one that I like to use for with my students is when we when we see a a car or a sports car, uh, we say that that car looks fast, right? And so we're articulating the feeling of speed as an affective quality of the vehicle that helps us determine what it is. And we do this broadly with a a variety of things. When we say somebody moves cat-like or as my mm-hmm. in my like dissertation work, I did this with gender. When we start talking about uh, somebody as being masculine or feminine or uh, lacking either of those affective qualities, we're talking about a felt relation to a person, something that isn't purely an object of knowledge, but rather a felt relation that is organized through our transactions with society. So. Uh, if you're looking for like an underground into the equation thing, I'd say we we just look at the way that we experience the world and we say, I feel like that's not the case. It's not simply that we're articulating a kind of uh, intellectual or uh, cognitive understanding of why something is wrong. It is the case that we are articulating a kind of affective sense of not rightness or mm-hmm. um a kind of felt sense of di- uh, of incongruity with or in a given argument. So those are generally a couple of on the ground uh, on on the ground examples, right? Um, yeah, and, and on the ground by which you mean you set off like five or six different culture war landmines in that one. Yeah, yeah, and you know, which I mean, again, would inform a lot of my engagement with you know the 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 culture world war, the IDW, so mm-hmm. on and so forth, which is hilarious because when, um, you know, culture warriors appeal to something not being logical or not 
uh, cohering with a worldview, they too are expressing an affective distance between uh, the, the way that their world coalesces and the experiences of, of somebody else. Those experiences just do not fit in a felt sense. Now, I mean, you'll never well, get a culture warrior to admit this, but it's kind yeah. of what they're appealing to. So, so I mean, while I'm sympathetic, I think, to your worldview, generally speaking, I, I feel like compelled uh, to play the devil's advocate here. And given that I've been spending a lot of time listening to their rhetoric, it's it's easier, at least, to get into their their mindset. So, for example, here's how I, I feel like they might push back here. Um, you know, what do you mean by the concept of trusting other people's claims? So, in their view, right... Uh, knowledge is built on skepticism and epistemology and that we shouldn't take people's words for things. We should gather data. And if the data conflicts with people's felt experiences or at best, you know, admit, you know at least doesn't fully support their felt experiences, um, what does it mean, practically speaking, to then trust them? And what are the, you know, like, will that have like real policy implications of us acting without sufficient evidence? So there are a couple of things baked into that that mm-hmm. uh, that objection. First of all, I, sure? I, you know, as I, I tend to say to my students, uh, the devil is a devil. It doesn't need any advocates, right? <laughs> so uh, the devil is fully capable of defending itself. Um, that being said, when we're talking about um, data, right? Data is simply a measure of the question asked, and we need to think about who's asking the question and for for what reason. But it's interest. But the other thing that I want to point out is that you mentioned uh, that, you know, the culture warriors rely on epistemology, right? But mm-hmm. I but when I'm talking about an affective experience, I'm also relying on an epistemology, albeit one that engages that uh, engages with the world differently, right? So at it, when I initially said there are more ways of experiencing the world than as an object of knowledge, I'm appealing to both Dewey, or I'm appealing to Dewey, Norinaga, Dolgen, mm-hmm. and uh, a wide tradition of, of honestly, black feminist scholars who, who say that there is more than one way to engage with the, the world. In fact, Dewey actually does this really well when he says that knowledge itself is a kind of experience, and it's only knowledge of something within a situated context that makes it what it is, right? There are other ways of knowing the world. So when uh, a culture warrior says, well, what does it mean to trust someone's experience when the data doesn't uh, support said experience? My response is, what do you mean by data? Um, and what do you mean by support? And how or, and what kind of an epistemological structure are you using to gather this data? And in whose service is that epistemological structure? Because again, uh, going back to to one, my indebtedness to, to Black feminists, to uh, <laughs> Dewey, to Norinaga, an, an epistemological structure is always in service to something. It's not uh, independent of the aims or independent of the objects that it seeks to discover. And so one of the things that I think the culture warriors do is put the cart before for the horse, right? So you're using an epistemological tool that does not conform to the situation in which uh, it is being used. Now, again, Dewey, you can force a tool onto a situation, but that doesn't make the tool the right tool, right? Um, mm-hmm. So my response, again, broadly to the the culture warriors who, who are like, well, what do we do when data doesn't match? Um, 
is to go back and look at what what data you're collecting, why you're collecting it, and what are the assumptions embedded in the the processes of data collection. And you can see how this gets into my uh, concerns about uh, in philosophy of technology with mm-hmm. machine learning, algorithmic bias, uh, right. things like that. Well, it's interesting that you, yeah, you bring that up. I was just recently pondering how in in these culture war debates like you see a lot of targeting of specific critical studies papers and materials so like um white fragility is is a major stalking horse for these folks i don't think i've ever seen them go after a book like um weapons of math destruction are you familiar with that one mm-hmm. yeah 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 okay so this is like you know a widely i think generally praised book that that basically you know makes the case that algorithms are being used to um sort of paste over and and rebrand you know like traditional historic injustices with like a veneer of mathematical objectivity um and that this is going to cause a lot of harm to people if it's not actively addressed and like to me when i read through that material it's indistinguishable from other critical studies material right it reads to me like a critical studies analysis of you know the state of play in ai technology but I, I'm not sure, like, what does that mean then for the culture war where I feel like these folks want to distinguish between the critical studies that's doing made up magic religion stuff, right? And the critical studies that appears to be really genuinely pointing to actual problems or like, you know, or deny, I guess, the existence of that kind of critical studies. And does that mean that they then have to take books like that and shove them into a different category? Or like, do you feel like books like that, you know, are of the same ilk as all of the things that you're working on here? Uh, yeah. So it's interesting that you use weapons of math destruction as a, uh, as an example, um, mm. and not something like uh, Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression or Rua Benjamin's mm-hmm. Race After Technology or uh, Andre Bach's new book. Uh, and I can't believe the, the title is at the tip of my tongue. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting that you use weapons of math destruction and not any of those texts, which you know, occasionally get uh, attacked by some of the culture warriors because they focus on racial disparities in hmm. uh, our, our techno-social context. Now, if one of the things that I, I would have to say is that if if the culture warriors want to be intern or want to be internally consistent, which um, I is not generally a feature of their arguments. If they want to be internally consistent, then they would have to put weapons of math destruction in with the other um, attacks on area studies. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, they're not being internally consistent. Um, And I think in some senses that should indicate the the hypocrisy in their attacks. And one of the things that I think uh, most cultural or culture warriors and folks sympathetic to culture or, or to the culture war argument miss is that when we're, when we're talking about critical theory and critical approaches to things, we're not simply talking about um, one way of doing things. We're talking about a broad methodology of looking at the, the social cultural implications of a given uh, social object, right? And mm-hmm. tip- insofar as, uh, you know, critical theory and critical studies has predominantly d- been done by folks uh, in the power min- minority, uh, the tendency is to engage with objects as they reify, maintain, or otherwise support uh, the structures of 
oppression. And it, it's interesting that, uh, you know, these culture warriors tend to focus broadly on women and women, gender sexuality studies, Africana studies, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Latinx studies, the identity studies, uh, and, and not say, uh, and not too much focus on something like whiteness studies or masculinity studies, which themselves are, are, are fraught within the broad umbrella of area studies because of the ways that they risk turning something like whiteness and masculinity into a re into a reified object. But they don't target mm -hmm. these things, right? They target the things that, in my view, um, pose a, a kind of existential threat, not only to uh, established hierarchies of dominations, but to the the worldview upon or to the worldview upon which those hierarchies uh, rely. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. and I, I, I like um, uh, so. There's a lot of work mm -hmm. being done on uh, on science, and a lot of work being done in what we would call the the hard sciences. Uh, particularly insofar as we're, we're looking at the ways that these, these sciences are, are structured from one positionality uh, and the way that these, these purportedly objective fields serve to reify broader social problems. Shonda Prescott-Weinstein does a lot of really good work on, uh, on race and gender in, in, in physics and in broader, harder sciences, uh, which is really important work because... Uh, even a even something like objective science is not truly objective insofar as it is grounded and continuous with the social context from which it emerges and from and to which it ultimately must return and this includes the kinds mm -hmm. of power dynamics that structure those social contexts so to say that science is is free of values is free of um is free of the the cultural conditions from which it emerges is massively problematic. It, it for example, it it runs mm -hmm. the risks of say eliding over the fact that the same technologies that sent us to the moon and put us in orbit are also the the same technologies that we use to kill thousands of people the w world over and to uh, maintain the march of colonialism and imperialism. Yeah, so there's a lot there. I, I do think that you're right that it, 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 these do these views do particularly upset certain factions because they critique a worldview that that does sort of believe that we can get um, fairly substantial epistemic access to objective knowledge through science and views these as as attempts to sort of tear down that objective knowledge. And I think. I think it can it can get confused in some situations because I don't think that critical studies folks, for example, are saying you know uh, because science has been you know steeped in white supremacy that means that airplanes can't actually fly, for example, right? Which is something yeah, that like yeah, they're no. accused of sometimes, right? Or like like the view that you're espousing against objective knowledge is supposed to be a view that like rejects the notion that like any basic information can be gained about the world, and I do think that like some of that is. Um, is an issue where I think folks on the critical studies side could be a little clearer on what the implications are uh, for what they're saying as well. And it, like, my problem is 
I do think there are genuine critiques to be had of these views because like any theory, right? There are genuine, like valuable critiques to make of that theory. Um, but I think it's very hard to give a good accounting of those genuine critiques when they are mixed in with what feels to me very deeply disingenuous sort of critiques of this material and largely a lot of deeply disingenuous critiques um, that are then combined with a kind of catastrophizing language about the world and about the world that like critical studies folks are trying to bring about. I feel like that makes it just incredibly hard to to have an on- honest conversation about, you know, well, what do we mean by the scientific method is racist or something? So, Sure. Yeah, no, right, so, I, I grant yeah. that. Um, uh, one of the things that I tend to to think about with that is, uh, you know, critical studies has never said that if I step out of a second floor window, I, I'll fall to my doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, what critical studies has said is the ways that we understand the forces at play that would cause me to fall to my doom are grounded in culture and mm-hmm. are continuous with all of the problems that come with culture. So there, so um, one of my approaches to critical studies is like, there's no escaping culture to mm-hmm. coin a phrase from Dewey. We're in nature through culture. So any understanding of nature, e.g. science is also uh, done through culture. Right. Right. There's no outside of language and such. I'm sympathetic to those kinds of perspectives, right? right. right? Um, So I I, I put all of that together to say, like, that is one kind of current worldview about the state of play that I think is very active in the culture war discourse. And I'm curious to get your sort of contrasting perspective, because it does seem to me like society is having a rough one at the moment, right? Like, it seems like things are not going well on a variety of fronts. Um, And I'm I'm curious how you, from your perspective, would diagnose which, you know, which ills do you think are like the root diseases and which things do you feel like are the symptoms, if you feel like that distinction is actually meaningful here? I actually don't, right? So oh, okay. one, of the, one of the things that I want to bring in is from my background uh, as a former motorcycle uh, riding instructor, right? So when we were taught, when we teach uh, students about motorcycle crashes, we say there is no one factor that leads to a motorcycle crash. It is an interaction of factors, right? So when I, when asked what is the one root ill of, uh, you know, of society, what is the cause of all of this stuff? And I, I say that generally there is no one cause to all of the, the kinds of social uh, tensions that we're, we're now experiencing. I, I think mm-hmm. that the, the current volume of social ills is largely due to increasing access to language to articulate uh, the conditions of one's oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by this, I mean, the, the culture warriors will say, you know, it's the, the proliferation of SJW language out into the world, which um, yes and no. I think it's the proliferation of language that was previously only the the province uh, of academia, of the ivory tower, uh, out into the world and in ways that allow non-academics or folks who are only limitedly connected to academia to articulate their own experiences, right? And so this is this is kind of one of the values of, of, of say, critical theory, uh, of all of the, the things that the culture warriors deride. It gives people a language to talk about their lived experience, right? 
So would you, you know, they've been, I've been seeing a lot of tweets like, well, what you're seeing in the streets now is evergreen gone global or right evergreen, ever, you know, stepping outside of the academia, uh, academia set, set, uh, setting, excuse me. Would mm. you like agree with that? But unironically, is that sort of your view that like, yes, and that's a good thing? Uh, yes and no. I think uh, okay. one of the, one of the open, one of the consequences of the opening up of, of academia and the provision of, of access to more people to academia, which um, is steadily being rolled back due to defunding of public education and other sorts of attacks on higher ed, but we can put that aside for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of, one of the consequences of the, the opening up of of academic institutions to a broad variety of people is the proliferation of, of the language, the techniques, the methodologies of academia into spaces that uh, previously did not have access to them. Now, how these the people in these spaces and how these spaces themselves take up that language varies wildly from space to space. One of the things that I, I, I see in this moment is the way that uh, the proliferation of ways of understanding the world that were previously trapped in academia have steadily made their way to the people who need them. So one of the, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the ills, we're, one of the things we're seeing here is uh, a problem that we long should have remedied, right? The the disconnection between academia and the lived experiences of uh, of everyone else, right? So recall when I said that science uh, emerges from culture and needs to return to culture. Uh, this is the same for every other academic discipline uh, that we might find within the ivory tower. One mm-hmm. of the the biggest tragedies of academia and philosophy in particular is that mm-hmm. it has constructed this uh, dichotomy between the ivory tower and everyone else, which ironically has helped a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the culture warriors, a lot of the, the right wing, uh, right wing critics uh, of liberal uh, of the liberal elite, the liberal academic elite that is so disconnected from the day to day lives uh, of the regular people that they have no idea what's going on and they keep insisting on these ridiculous schemes like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, universal basic income or uh, health care for all, things like that. Things that are only practical in the, the ivory tower of academia, which is quite frankly mm. bullshit. But uh, it's a consequence of the way that we are a consequence of the ways that we as academics have uh, have coveted the knowledge that we have cultivated and the knowledge that we have developed as this thing that can't be understood unless you're within the tower. Now, I Mm -hmm. I need to be clear that there are uh, plenty of fields where this is not the case. And ironically, these are the fields that are constantly under attack by culture warriors, the area studies, Africana philosophy, Latinx studies, uh, Mm -hmm. women gender studies, queer studies, things like that. While there are high-end theoretical uh, approaches to these areas, there are also practical on the ground uh, experiential things that folks who share these experiences or, or who don't can t- pick up and use to enhance their own understandings of the world. And I think uh, this is unique to those areas because their starting points are generally lived experience, lived experience that has been hmm. uh, denied or treated as false for so long that uh, you have an entire uh, set of fields dedicated to basically saying, no, fuck you, my lived experience is valid. It's so valid that I'm going to write theory about it and you're going to accept it as such. 
Mm. The way you described that, the like the seeping out of tools into the world in the form of language for people to use to express what they're experiencing and that what we're seeing is, um, you know, people having essentially like it's not that more people are getting the disease of oppression. It's that we've always had this much disease of oppression, but you didn't have the language to diagnose it as broadly or something like that. It makes me it reminds me again of this this feeling that I often have in these discussions where you know, in like the modern world, quote unquote, the modern world comes about, it feels like, you know, like the narrative as it comes about as a result of a, a kind of rebirth of skepticism with skepticism towards authority, originally religious authority. Um, and that skepticism allows for like science to bring about a variety of kinds of changes and starts to bring about various kinds of cultural change. And then it seems to me that critical theory is basically those skeptical tools right getting into the hands of people who then use them to be skeptical of the society that while using skepticism on certain fronts has not been using it on other fronts and then it just seems like it ends up being people being mad that someone took skepticism a step too far which is just like the the eternal history of skepticism it seems to me so i'm curious if you feel like that's that's like a fairly accurate account of what's going on here and that like a lot of the social you know a lot of the status quo folks are folks who love skepticism when they can use it to bang away against theism or something like that but are much less excited about skepticism it seems like when it's turned against um you know white supremacy or something or like i think i think you know in their defense they will say you know we're for it we just think that this is a bad version of it if you press them on it um but yeah i'm curious what your thoughts are on that so um again to return to my you know uh my my concerns with affect and felt uh, mm-hmm. experience right sarah med has a, a a really good analysis of this right when uh we talk about the attribution of willfulness now what we could we could look at here is that uh you know a scholar who uses the tools of skepticism uh, and applies them to uh, existing hierarchies uh, of power of and domination is being is willfully misapplying those tools according to the broader hmm. organization of society. And so, by willfully misapplying those tools, they become a willful subject which needs to be disciplined back into line with the appropriate use of those tools. And insofar as the individual resists being disciplined uh, and further creates an edifice out of that resistance, out of that willfulness, they are they are constructed as uh, inherently problematic or out of line with the, the ongoing march of scientific inquiry. How dare mm-hmm. you take these tools that have discovered objective reality and then turn them back on a structure that we have not questioned but has you know these effects on your your lived experience so i think so, so so i think there's some of that right i think there is some of that that backlash uh against what is viewed as the inappropriate use of uh of, of tools right but i i want to problematize this entire conversation because it's not really like while there are parallels with skepticism and this is a thing that i i uh I always push my students on when I'm teaching Asian philosophy and Africana philosophy, right? While mm-hmm. there are parallels with these Western understandings, right? These Western mm-hmm. notions, uh, uh, they are not identical. So to say that, you know, uh, 
while there are feminists that that explicitly take up the you know the the tools of skepticism and apply them to, to structures of gender domination, to say that area studies uh, in in general are engaging in skepticism is to uh, reinscribe. Uh, the center, right? They're not engaging mm. in skepticism. They're engaging in uh, the development uh, of theoretical position, uh, positions to make clear their experience of the world or to make clear their understandings of the structures that give rise to their experiences. So while some may use these tools um, mm-hmm. and some tools may appear similar to existing concepts, existing tools, I resist the notion that folks beyond these traditions are doing skepticism as understood in the West, right? Um, uh, it's or could to we say, say at least that, exclusively skepticism, right? They're not just yeah, doing skepticism. Yeah, they're not just doing, uh, they're not just doing skepticism. And I, I would mm-hmm. struggle to say that they're doing uh, skeptics at all. I mean, I get this, this is one of those tensions about the the boundaries of, of traditions, mm-hmm. right? So um, when I'm not teaching focused uh, for example, with American philosophy, right? When I'm not teaching, say, focused courses on on, on Dewey, right? If I'm mm-hmm. teaching a survey of American philosophy, I will include um, I will include Du Bois, who was a student of William James, uh, or I will include um, you know Shannon mm-hmm. Sullivan, and I will include uh, George Yancey and Martin Luther King um, to expand the notion of what it means to be an American philosopher, right? And so, mm-hmm. I, uh, again, uh, this might be the, the uh, this again is the, the non-Western philosopher in me coming out in that I don't view these things as, as porous or as rigid dividing lines, but porous uh, boundaries to be crossed over uh, back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I think there's value if we've had discussions on the show before about comparisons between these different sort of traditions and, and like the flaws with even seeing them as like fully separate traditions can you can talk about a lot of different issues here um i think i think it's a good corrective right to say look it may be valuable to see some overlaps here but we don't want to reduce everything down to one monolithic like this yeah. is what everyone is really doing at the end of yeah. the day right i think that's that's problematic in philosophy just like it is in religious studies when people start getting into like everybody's really climbing the same mountain towards the same <laughs> god kind of stuff right yeah um, yeah so I, I totally take your criticism there. Um, now, you mentioned um, uh, things going on in academia, right? Yeah, and well, like they, they're having their own problems alongside society and in conjunction with society in a variety of ways. So I'm curious, how do you diagnose yourself the problems within academia? What do you see as the things that like are really like the major issues that we need to stop the bleeding on right now? Uh, so, well, one of the things we need to uh, to do is... Remember that the the purpose of of education is not just job training, right? So uh, Du Bois said, if uh, we make job training the object of education, we'll have skilled laborers, but not people, right? So education is for or education is for the production of people, and I say production because in mm-hmm. our our current you know capitalist hellscape, right. Everything is things are, are reduced to kind of productive labor, which is problematic. But realistically, inst- again, to go back to somebody like Dewey, who says that institutions aren't really for people, 
right? They they aren't even for stuff. They are for producing thing to put in, to put something in place, right? So one of the things that I think we've forgotten about education is, is that education's sole purpose is to cultivate people, right? Mm-hmm. Help us become better people to help us become more capable of transacting with a broader or with a, our, our social world in a wide variety of ways, right? Uh, and so that I think would be the first diagnosis I, I would make. We've forgotten that education, one, mm-hmm. is not a business, right? And Freire right. has an entire uh, book about why we shouldn't treat education in a banking or, or, or business model, right? Mm-hmm. Um one, we've forgotten that education is not a business. We've forgotten that education is not preparation for a job, but preparation for life, for living, for being a person. And two, and mo- most chiefly, is we've forgotten that education is not simply something that happens in a classroom, uh, that our classrooms are not divorced from the, the social contexts uh, that surround our students, right? Our classrooms are continuous with the society. And insofar as academia, the ivory tower, philosophy resists uh, turning its gaze towards the society in which it is embedded, uh, it will increasingly marginalize itself into oblivion. And I mean, we can see this somewhat in in people arguing, well, demonstrate the value of a liberal arts education, right? Show mm-hmm. me show me the value of a liberal arts education. You can see the value of a STEM education. They produce stuff. They make things, right? Uh, which is a, a narrow view of what STEM actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a narrow view that uh, that folks have have ridden all the way to the bank. So when we talk about the value of, of a thing, right? Uh, when we talk about the ways that education is connected to experience, I think one of the things we're missing is that experience and life is more than just doing a job, right? And if we're mm-hmm. going to talk about valuing the liberal arts, the value of the liberal arts is to provide us with other ways of experiencing the world or insights into other ways of experiencing the world. And this, again, is, uh, you know, Motori Norinaga's privileging of literature, of momogatari and poetry as means of understanding lived experience is is grounded in this, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So for, for Norinaga, you can have a, a kind of analytic viewpoint of the world, but you will not understand uh, the lived experiences of, of other persons, right? Because that this requires an affective engagement, which you can get through literature, through the liberal arts, right? And mm-hmm. Dewey has some of the same thing, thing here, right? You can understand a culture through uh, the works that it creates. Yeah, and I'm definitely, I mean, as someone who's sympathetic to virtue ethics, I'm sympathetic to the idea that the kind of liberal education is about cultivating an individual who can engage in a life of flourishing and sort of mm. a wide range of projects of worth. Um, so, but even, even that, yeah. right? So our, our well, education should be designed to ask uh, or to, to foster in us the capacity to ask what is a life of worth? What is, sure. does it mean to flourish, right? And I yeah, think a absolutely. lot of that is... is I think we've lost a lot of that in a focus on, you know, how does this Mm -hmm. prepare me for a job, right? Sure, absolutely. Go back to Du Bois. Like, if we make job training the object of education, we'll have laborers, but not persons. Um, And we need to start thinking about what kind of persons emerge from our educational institutions and move out into a world where they have to interact with other persons. 
So what do you think then about targets, uh, criticisms of specific targets within academia? I mean, are you going, do you have a similar sort of like systems approach where you would say that like, it's not right to target specific individuals. This is, these are systemic sort of larger cultural problems. Like, for example, I see, you know, sometimes people go after students and say that the students are flawed because their tastes are bad or because they've been coddled too much or various things. <laughs> like, do you feel like do you feel like students are unfairly maligned in the culture war? And, and how do you how do you respond yes. to that as a teacher? I feel that students are unfairly maligned because to say that students have bad taste, uh, that they don't know what they're talking about, uh, is to say is to, I mean, again, not trust in a student's own experience of the world. Now, their experience might be, say, uh, formed in a, in a, a soup of white supremacist bullshit, right? <laughs> At which point you need to like make interventions, expose them to other ways of experiencing the, the world. But that is part of the project of education to enable somebody to grow beyond, uh, particular limits, particular kinds of, of, of contexts, right? So students, I believe, are unfairly maligned, and this has dangerous implications uh, for how we uh, structure our institutions, how we engage with, with students broadly, right? If, uh, if, if we, as, you know, as the professoriate, say that students don't know what the fuck they want, that they, have <laughs> no, they don't have the lived experience to be able to understand what it is they want, and we need to we need to make this decision for them, right? And in student affairs literature and education literature, it's in local parentis, right? So mm -hmm. like if, if we take that up, right, that's bullshit, right? That That's complete bullshit. A student knows what they want. They have an idea, a felt sense of what they want. They may not be able to articulate it. And it's our job to help them find a way to articulate what it is they want uh, in the world and more specifically what it is they want the world to be and to provide them with you know, maybe provide them with the tools to get there. Now, there are some visions of the world that I, I have to say are just, you know, batshit, right? A utopia mm -hmm. that is premised upon my uh, oppression is not a utopia that I want to live in. <laughs> so part of yeah. our, our job as educators is to enable them to uh, not only live well, or find the or develop the tools to to live well and define what that means, but to develop the tools to enable them to live well with one another. Um, now, the other thing I will say about this is a really good answer to this question, a really good analysis of this of, of this you know shitting on students phenomena, um, which is rampant across higher education. Uh, is uh, Sarah Med's uh, blog post against students, which I've appealed to a couple times in some of my mm. Twitter threads, right? So yeah, that she, was a good she, one I read. You suggested I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I mean, I think that should be like required reading for like everybody in academia, right? This is what we do to students, right? We, we treat their legitimate concerns as indications of a problem and turn the students into a problem and not the issue that they're they're bringing to the fore, Right. Uh, so a student becomes a problem when they say, well, my curriculum is too white and I don't see myself in it. So they be, they, they become a consuming student or a complaining student, which, you know, it's kind yeah. of bullshit, right? I didn't see myself so and it, well, to be clear, I didn't see myself in, in any curriculum until, or beyond tokenistic Black History Month stuff until uh, I took a course in African-American literature in high school. 
Mm -hmm. So I think there are some folks on the like criticism side of this who will say, you know, well, my my beef isn't actually with the students. You know, the students are victims in all of this. They've been coddled. You know, they've been poorly trained. Like the real fault lies with the professors and the administrators who are coddling them in these kinds of ways. Um, Do you feel what do you feel like about the critiques of professors and administrators? Do you think that there is sort of genuine critiques to be made of beyond the the commodification stuff that you talked about earlier like do you feel like there are ideological critiques that are fair to level about uh towards professors and admins uh well i mean i i tend to treat uh most administrators as hostile until proven otherwise right um so like i have and if i'm like i have a a dim view of of administration mostly because of their distance from the uh the mission of a of an institution right most administrators don't teach they don't generally engage broadly with students um they engage in uh, a kind of managerial uh role over the institution and insofar as they they help set the direction of the institution they tend to do so in a uh, a kind of conservative way because they they still tend to treat the default uh, the default student and broadly the default faculty member as aligning with with, with whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, there are very good analyses sees of this, right? That said, it's so my concerns with idea my my concerns with say uh, critiques of of professors engaging in ideology is we're all we tend to focus specifically on uh, professors that advocate sort of a you know a leftist kind of ideology, maybe an extreme leftist ideology as a problem, as bringing a liberal bias into a classroom where there there should be none, yet mm-hmm. we allow, you know, rampant other kinds of ideological biases to, you know, flourish in, in academia, transphobia, you know, white supremacy, uh, heteronormativity, uh, you name right. it, it flourishes in academia, yet the the liberal, the supposed liberal bias is the one that receives the most airtime, probably because, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease, and when somebody points out uh, other kinds of, uh, of oppressive ideologies in academia, uh, yeah. you get the predictable pushback from... Uh, within academia broadly right look at what happens with philosophy whenever you you point out transphobia in 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 research or racism in research or in in the sciences with um attempts to quantify iq um Mm -hmm. things like that those kinds of projects are are roundly pointed out as 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 racist as transphobic but it is the very disciplines themselves that say no 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 we need to leave space for this genuine inquiry into what Right mm-hmm. into a, a scientific justification why somebody who looks like me will never be as good as some of my you know cohort members on the basis of you know being black, right? So this is this is so one of one of the things when we we one of the things that we need to talk about when we think about ideology is I don't think there is any faculty member, tenured or otherwise, that that does not approach teaching with a a kind of ideological bias, right? Mm -hmm. It organizes our our, our selection of material for syllabi, our teaching methodologies, the provision of accommodations within the classroom. The very way we structure how we teach in a classroom is grounded in uh, a wide range of of ideologies. Uh, What we need to be thinking about is how uh, uh, is what ideologies go unquestioned and why, and 
uh, how ideologies and whether or not these ideological positions contribute to human flourishing, right? So mm -hmm. I, I might say I have an ideological position uh, that uh, pushes my students to question any assumption that they take as default or uh, unmarked, right? Um, Mm -hmm. e.g. Uh, that they will weigh the same everywhere in the universe, right? Uh, they might have the same mass, but on Mars, they would weigh less than they would on Earth because of gravity, right? right. Um, but we, we, gravity is something that we, we don't question, right? But mm -hmm. gravity, our experience of gravity varies from uh, location to location, right? Uh, and so this is the kinds of thing that I get my student, or I try to get my students to think about that even the the things that we take as universal are not universal in the same way in all times in all places, and because they are not, can we truly say they're universals? Right? Yeah. yeah there was something you brought up in there that I want to push on a little. I want to um, sort of in unpack a little bit more because it's a spot where I sometimes feel like I'm being gaslit, mm. <laughs> where. At the same time, I'm told academia, whether it's the admins or the professors or whoever, that it's overrun with this kind of critical <laughs> studies views, right? Like, it, like that's the that's the, the the sort of language of it that like this is rampant and it's like a disease that's like rampant inside of the factory and is spilling out at this point. <laughs> like, you know, everyone's getting infected. Um, and at the same time, when you look at academia, it doesn't look like it's overrun by this particular kind of worldview, right? It's still the same largely white, largely male, largely hetero, uh, you know, largely able uh, community that it has has always been, it seems like. When I, like, um, I think when you and I were early first chatting was around the time that um, the hashtag black in the ivory was oh, trending, yes. Yes, right? Yes, yes. And I highly yeah. recommend everybody read the hashtag black in the ivory because, like, these, these were horror stories about what people are still experiencing on a sort of day-to-day -day level having to do with the opposite of what it seems like I'm being told is you know, going on academia, and sometimes, like, folks will tell me, oh, well, you know, it's just that philosophy doesn't have this problem. Other fields <laughs> are totally overrun, but, like, you're just, you just, you just, it just hasn't gotten to you yet or something like that, right? Like, we've bolted the doors in the academic department and the zombies haven't gotten in yet, or in the philosophy department. I'm, like, curious, how do you reconcile all these competing narratives about what is going on in academia? Um, so first thing I'll say about that is, you know, the, the concern is, is something that, you know, some of my, my elders in my family will say, uh, uh, a hit dog will holler. Right. So okay. <laughs> when we think about, you know, what happens, the, the critique of, you know, critical theory run rampant as pointing out structural or systemic inequalities. Right. So my question is, why are you complaining about somebody using the tools of academia to diagnose systemic inequalities broadly? Uh, what is it about this project that bothers you so, right? Mm. Um, and people will say, well, it's, it's, I, I, I think it's shoddy methodology. I'm like, shoddy according to, to whom? Uh, under, mm -hmm. On what epistemology are you judging the methodological you know, approaches, right? And this gets us back to that conversation we were having about weapons of math destruction and mm -hmm. algorithms of oppression and, and ra race after <laughs> uh, technology, right? 
the, the I only want to point out I cited that one is because I only knew that one because it's the most most, <laughs> most mainstream one and it's it's totally my fault that I don't know the but, ones by uh, people of color. That's but but that's a that's me. a good point, right? It's yeah, most mainstream it <laughs> main, mainstream according to whom, right? Um, right, Be, because right, right for what it's doing. It as you rightly point out, it aligns with the epistemological assumptions of some of these culture warriors, despite its project of critiquing. Uh, you know, structures of inequality, right? And so mm-hmm. when I say a hit dog will holler, the first thing I have to ask is what what is your concern about uh, an interrogation into systemic inequality? If it's because you don't think this exists, uh, it's if it's because you think somebody's producing a problem for nothing, then I you you I have to ask what what kind of social context are you transacting okay. with such that you you view that there's no problems right yeah let's, um, let's talk about that some because i think the answer to that question is actually part of the next thing i want to talk to you about which is the anger and like the reason i think some you know like some of these people are hollering is because they they feel what seems to them as justified anger that they are being harmed by these ideologies that they have. I mean, like, as ironic as it is, right, all the folks involved in the yeah. grievance study appear to have grievances against people in the <laughs> grievance studies for the way that they've been treated. And they will, you know, at every event sort of rattle off the list of ways that they've been abused. And again, I don't want to downplay if people are getting death threats. I just want to highlight that, like, it seems like everybody who reaches a certain level of engagement with this material ends up getting abuse and death threats and so it seems like that alone is not necessarily proof that like one side is engaged in sort of a horribly abusive war of trying to silence people because like right everyone on the opposite side is already also getting silenced in that same kind of way if that counts as silencing but the thing i want to ask you about is it seems like there is just a fuck ton of anger on all sides and i don't mean that in a bullsiderism kind of way i think there's a clear difference between justified and unjustified anger i think some of the anger is a lot more justified than other anger but i'm also just like completely at a loss at this point for how to de-escalate this climate of anger between these groups that we're so deep into the feud now that like um there's, there's no way to walk it back it seems like to me and I'm just curious, like, how do you feel like we need to be addressing and dealing with that anger? And is there a way that we can do so that isn't like in, in, in correctly addressing one group's anger through social justice, we are just ratcheting up the anger of another group? How do we deescalate both at the same time? Uh, so the, the a couple of things, right? Um <laughs> One of the things that I'd ask is de-escalate to what? Walk it back to what, right? If we want to, say, de-escalate back to the status quo. Um, yeah, definitely not that, right? right? Certainly if not. If we want to walk it back to uh, the previous positions uh, of, of both camps, then if we're going to be real honest about that, that's asking folks who have been marginalized for centuries uh, to – accept their own marginalization so that we can talk it out, right? Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I I find interesting about the question is it, it assumes that we need to de-escalate these things uh, as opposed to uh, allowing the conflict to, uh, you know, resolve, right? Well, so, sorry. It, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe de-escalation is not the best language because i mean part of when i think of de-escalation i think of you know you you escalate so that you force people to negotiate and then you negotiate so that you you know you de-escalate but towards progress and not towards a retrenchment into the status quo um and i do think there is something to be said for the fact that like 
all of the anger right now is causing a lot of harm and a lot of damage to a lot of people. And I do think that we want to get to a place of less polarization. Like our government, for example, is just completely deadlocked by polarization. And a lot of that is becoming as a result of this anger and as a result of people sort of continuing to defend the status quo because they are of a vested interest in it. So Um, and so, so it's not simply that they have a vested interest in the status quo. They have a vested interest in a broad institutional structure that maintains their own systemic advantages uh, at the, um, you know, uh, to the to the marginalization of, of almost everybody else, right? So we're mm-hmm. one of the things we're talking about when we're we're talking about the this anger. Uh, again, I go back to Audre Lorde, like anger in response to to racism. Our anger is a a natural and appropriate response to an experience of racism. And she says this and uh, on the uses of of anger, which is a, a, if you haven't read it, it's a really good articulation of, you know, of rage and of, of the, the ways that anger can be productive, right? So one of the things that, so when we're thinking about about anger, right, and I think of anger as an affective response to a disruption in uh, the environment, and on the one side, the disruption is a is a challenge to a status quo that has maintained uh, a sense of comfort and a, a sense of uh, being at home within the world um, that is now being disrupted by folks whose anger emerges out of a out of constant and incessant disruptions to their 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 transactions with the the world every experience of of racism of marginalization uh, of white supremacist violence in large and small ways is uh an occasion for anger right Mm -hmm. um and so when we're talking about you know what do we do with all all the what do we do with this anger uh one i mean we sit with it, right? Uh, we sit with it and let it run it, its course. But two, again, I go back to Lord. We we must make productive use of it, right? And Lord has some some pretty good advice for uh, folks in the power majority who are incensed at you know the, these challenges to their uh, you know to the, their comfort, right? So you know, guilt doesn't serve us, right? And a lot of I, I think a lot of the anger that emerges is is through an implication of guilt, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, insofar as we use guilt as a starting point to think about how to transform the world so that you no longer feel guilty, right? Rather than saying, no, you have made me feel guilty and I'm pissed at you, so I need to tear down uh, the edifices that have allowed you to feel this way or allowed you to cause me to feel this way mm-hmm. uh, is, is massively problematic, right? So mm-hmm. uh, long and short, I don't actually have a solution to the, this, right? And I think uh, the... I think there's so much opacity with where we're going here that projecting any solution would be uh, be, be kind of half-ass, right? So, uh, it would be something. It's it not be, a fair question. I just wanted to ask it anyway. <laughs> right? No, that's 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 fair. But one of the things we need to think about is uh, you say there's anger on both sides. Uh, we need to think about what uh, what disruptions in say, our ongoing transactions with the world produce that anger, right? Mm-hmm. And for some folks, that disruption is a challenge to their, uh, you know, to their their understanding of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, when I actually read this question over when you, uh, uh, when we were thinking about this, right? I, I, this is something that I've been thinking about, about too. And I think um, rarely do we, like, 
allow ourselves to interrogate, you know, this this kind of anger, right? We use mm-hmm. it to motivate ourselves to do something. And on the, you know, culture warrior sides, right? Um, you know, it's channeled into violence, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And violence, not since, not simply in the the context of uh, a police officer applying a, a chokehold for eight minutes and 45 seconds, but the kind of violence we saw in Brett Kavanaugh's testimony before the Senate, the kind of violence we saw in the, the recent uh, hearings on uh, on police violence. I think it was like Matt Getz who mm-hmm. lost it on the representative from Louisiana. <laughs> he's been uh, having a day. <laughs> yeah, he's been having a real bad day. But we, we see the ways that their, their transactions with society have taught them to channel the 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 affective response to this disruption into anger, into violence. Kill the thing that has made me feel this way rather than sit with why I feel this way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think in many cases, and I and you know, if if I'm gonna indict the grievance studies folks on one thing, it's this. They are unwilling to sit with the affective responses they have to reading the stuff that comes from critical theory. They are yes. unwilling to sit with the way that it makes them feel. Uh, because I think if they did, uh, they would have a lot more difficult questions to answer. And you look, I, fuck it, let's <laughs> I, indict higher ed in general on this, right? This is right. why you get bullshit statements about you know uh, diversity and equity when you have institutions that fought for decades not to fund the the, the ethnic studies programs that they treat as you know mm-hmm. they're they're sterling examples of diversity and inequity because if they took seriously the aims of these programs they would have to rethink how they're doing things they would re- have to rethink how they're treating their students their staff their faculty their their very image of what a student is and these these departments call all of this into question which is mm-hmm. a hard thing for uh, an administrator to deal with which hilarious because most uh, university presidents, most provosts have PhDs, right? They are yeah, trained no, I think that's a lot academics. Of, it's a lot of good points there. Um, for uh, One other thing that you suggested to me besides the um, uh, against students and um, on the uses of anger that you've referenced a couple of times here was, was Malcolm X's Black Revolution speeches, <laughs> yeah. which, which yeah. I was watching. And I was alternating watching those with some of the Grievance Study People's videos for other work and research that I'm doing. And mm-hmm. that that's a mindfuck to watch those two things together. Let me tell you, I highly recommend that everybody just to like see two so separate worldviews and like so much anger and different approaches to that kind of anger. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't think that they're equal in any kind of way. I just think that like it is a very, it's very interesting to see you know, him being in some ways kind of a lot of what they're really afraid of in terms of identity politics going to a dangerous, violent place, and then also just listening to him the way that he talks about it, like, it really is, um, it engenders a lot of sympathy in the way that he he justifies his positions. Um, So... Yeah. And and that's fair, but one of the interesting things is that's, you know, that's that's been part of uh, the tradition that that gave birth to X, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, again, lords on the uses of angers. Uh, Douglas's "What is the meaning of the Fourth of July to the Negro?" has a lot of that, right? You know, mm-hmm. especially when people 
you know, argue that, you know, they'd be more willing to listen if, you know, the, the woke brigade explained thing nice or explains things nicely. How do you explain like, Mm-hmm. In, in what way should I explain that you need to recognize my humanity nicely in ways that I haven't already done? We have canons yeah. of literature, right? Um, and in those speeches, X talks about, you know, they've learned to cite those canons of literature yep. and it doesn't make a damn bit of difference, right? Yep. Like, uh, even if you say it in the in the right white person language, it doesn't quite yep. work. Um, yep. So um, I realize... Douglas, getting, yeah. <laughs> Douglas actually says, if I were to, you know, belabor... Or, uh, Douglas makes this point when he, he says that uh, to belabor the, the humanity of the slaves uh, before white people... Uh, would be to make them make himself ridiculous when they have passed law after law restricting the rights of, of, of black people and only a person can be subject to a law. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's so much here and I feel like we could just keep going. Um, yeah, that's but true. I, I, I do. I, I got unfortunately got to wrap it up, if nothing else, for my editor's no, sake. That, that's um, fine. Do you want to let folks know just maybe some other anything else that you would suggest folks read or listen to to kind of better understand uh, the current so, climate? So I'm going to echo something that Angela Davis said, right? You know, uh-huh. uh, Angela Davis in uh, a, a recent colloquium said that, you know, uh, black trans women, uh, black trans folks are, are really kind of at the forefront front of engaging with these kinds of uh, structures with with these kinds of dichotomies in, in the world, and we would do ourselves a great service to listen to you know black queer and trans voices, and additionally, uh, you know black voices of disability. Right. So too often uh, when we're talking about literature to help white people learn, we we, we cite these mainstream examples, uh, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, we cite these mainstream examples, but we don't talk about, uh, you know, having people read the, you know, the works of, of, of black folks with, with disabilities. Uh, Sammy Schalk's uh, Body Minds Reimagined, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we can think of uh, the, the pages of, of ink that has been spilt about this, right? So it, what, so you, you ask for reading recommendations generally, you know, read more black women, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, read more black women who talk about disability, read more queer black women, read more trans uh, <laughs> black folks. So uh, you're you, just you, playing you, into their intersectional fears by just listing off all of the categories that way. Well, fuck them, because these are I'm... the voices that we that have been marginalized even within spaces of liberation. Right. Your our, our revolution will be accessible or it will be bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is kind of a thing that I'm, you know, as a person with a disability, I'm kind of committed to. Our, the revolution mm-hmm. will be accessible or it will be bullshit, right? Um, so, it's good. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not laughing because I disagree with you. I'm laughing no, no, because no, I'm, I'm sympathetic and I understand. And at the same time, I know exactly how this sounds to the people that I, I wish, that I, that I, like, I do genuinely hope are listening and can hear some of what you are saying. And, like, I'm just trying to create... you know, an alternative in people's minds of a charitable reading of critical studies and these kinds of fields that, like, they can know exist as an alternative to the the giant 40-foot-tall straw man that I feel like some people have built. 
Well, a charitable reading of critical studies, right? To have an uncharitable reading of critical studies means that you would have to approach the project of critical studies as inherently problematic, right? That the mm -hmm. inquiry into structures of domination and power is on its surface uh, problematic. That is how you get to a uh, an uncharitable reading, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or you pull, pull, you know, or you just refuse to read the material. Uh, but, but yeah. At this so, point, I do not believe that they have refused to read the material. At this point, I think the people have read the material. They've read it though in the least charitable, like, yeah, and way it, possible. It, and then, it's, yeah, it's how one reads the material, right? Not sure, to quote sure. a, not not to invoke a Nazi, but Heidegger. <laughs> it's it's how one approaches the tool, right? Actually, I think Merleau Ponty does this a lot better. Yeah, fuck Heidegger, Merleau Ponty. It's how one approaches the object within one's worldview that determines the uh, the dispositions of the object uh, in the world, right? So if you approach critical studies as SJW bullshit or an attack on innocent white folks, that's going to poison your engagement with it. Um, yeah, it, my, the thought I always come back to is a uh, fish called Wanda because it's one of my, <laughs> you know, classic <laughs> favorites, right? Auto, um, you know, uh, gorillas read philosophy; they just don't understand it. Right, um, right, and I right. feel like that—that's sometimes how it feels with the critical studies. Though I do not this think that true. any of them are dumb. I think they're all very, very smart. I just think that there's like a deeply uh, strong desire to have this read in, in, a, in a not charitable way. So, okay, I've got to cut it off because I've got to do the uh, enlightening round here okay sure. so all of our friendship will come crashing down because i have to ask <laughs> you i'm gonna give you a list of things and you're gonna tell me are those things real or not real okay are you what ready okay yeah let's do this there's no hedging you don't have to nah, define on, what word real means all right so is anything real um so things are are things possess a variety of reality depending on our transaction with them so, so some things are real no uh, no, they, there's no there's uh, no hedging are some things real or not real or is nothing real uh that's a dualism that i refuse to accept and that's not a hedging that's a that's a legitimate answer to your question i know i know but you got to play the game right uh, okay do you uh, do you interact with things as if they are real in some sense yes things okay. are real how okay. they are real real varies of on the experience duly duly noted for your cancellation later um okay is the external world real yes but again the reality no, of the no, external no. World. okay okay are right, colors fine. real yes but they're not real in the same way to everyone no, 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 it's fine it's fine all right phenomenal consciousness define phenomenal and define consciousness <laughs> nope i will not <laughs> Oh, that's a tough one. That is a, a, a tough one. What would the alternative be? Noumenal consciousness? Nope. Uh, what phenomenal. the fuck does that even look like? Uh, yeah, phenomenal consciousness is a thing, but it's not a thing. In the, uh, you know what I'm going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Free will. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll give it. I'll, I'll go with that. Again, okay. you know uh -huh, what I'm uh -huh. saying. Uh -huh. Selves or persons? Yes, actually, but they're not permanent. Okay, great. Genders? Yeah. Uh, okay. A woman who walks out the door runs right into her gender. Races? This is a... This, mm, yes, because I don't walk out of the world as a, as a man. I walk out of the world as a black man, and that has okay. particular effects. Okay, okay. 
I'm giving you so much more leeway than I normally give people anyway. <laughs> Species. Uh, huh. Sure, yeah, in terms of, of language, right? Okay, okay. That okay. is a, yeah. Okay, real. Uh, morality? No. Okay. Rights? Only in social contexts. Okay, knowledge? Uh, only in social contexts. Yeah, it's real, is what the word you're looking for there. God much, yes. or gods? Okay, now I'm going to answer this. Um, so, <laughs> this is the most the, contentious version of this we've ever had. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> God exists, but not in the form as understood uh, mm-hmm. in in the Bible. If there is a God, we wouldn't know its existence. We'd only know its existence by the effect <laughs> it has it. on the world around. No, 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 come on. Save it for the end notes, right? Oh, There's sure. Plenty, yeah. plenty of room to footnote right. this later. Uh, society. Sure, society's real. Okay, Fuck, money. I mean, I, um, no. Fuck <laughs> numbers. <laughs> yeah, numbers are real. Okay, fictional characters. Yep, I have okay. a big thing on that. Holes, as in a hole in the ground. Like a hole in the ground. Yep. Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Chairs. Um. Yeah, chairs are real. Okay. Sandwiches? Uh, define sandwich for me. Is nope. a hot dog a sandwich? Nope. Not not here for not in the defining <laughs> business right now. Yeah, no, sandwiches are real. Okay. Science. Uh yeah, science is real. Okay. Natural laws. Uh not real. Okay. Beauty. Real. Causality. Yeah, I'm gonna go with with, with real in the broadest sense. Okay. And time? Uh, yeah. Okay. You survived. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like every one of those deserves a, a broader explanation, especially, <laughs> yeah. you know, time, yeah. God, chairs, sandwiches. Yeah. Um, it's the greatest uh, hits of things people want to talk about forever. Um, but yeah, that's that's the way this game works. Right, right, right. Um, I do find it funny that pragmatic, pragmatist, sympathetic people tend to just slip into a, yeah, sure, it's all, it's all real. It's all fucking real, whatever. Yeah, I mean, shit, God's real to you as long as it has practical effects on your lived uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, right. but it, it seems does, like a reductio ad absurdum of pragmatism, it, but that's fine. Pretty much, but it doesn't mean that God is real in the same way to, or in the same way at all times to, to all people. Right, of course. Um, I do uh, want to say that there, when we were talking before, there's one question that you didn't ask me that I really feel compelled to give an answer to. Oh, I apologize. Yes, which one was it? Uh, is there any reason to be optimistic that white people are going to make this shit better and not worse? <laughs> yeah, it felt like you'd implicitly answered it in various ways, but sure. Uh, how would you like to explicitly answer it? I want to say that there's only so much that marginalized people can do to change a power structure where we um, where we lack particular kinds of authority. Uh, and at some point, white people are going to have to shit or get off the pot, right? So white people can make this shit better should they choose to, but too often white people 
choose to make things better only in their own interests, right? And so white people, I think, have the, uh, and as a pragmatist, I believe in possibility, right? So there's a, there is a possibility that uh, for white folks to make this shit better and not worse. But I, in our current context, I struggle to see uh, the ways in which white people can make that possibility into an actuality beyond throwing themselves or beyond mm. putting themselves between marginalized folks and white supremacist violence and it's all in all of its forms. In fact, that should be a white, white people's starting point. If a white person is listening to this and they want to know what is the one thing they can do to make shit better for marginalized folks, put your body between marginalized folks and white supremacist violence in all of its forms. All right. I think that's a good point that I'm going to leave without commenting <laughs> on as a white person. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. I really appreciate this chat. Um, and hopefully we can get you back on at some point to see how these things sure. are turning out. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to be back. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 